Audio storytelling has become increasingly popular, with many taking to the microphone to share their voices, opinions, and stories through the spoken word. But it isn't just about personal expression. Podcasting connects people and can be an outlet for those underserved by traditional media. I am Gabriela Perdomo, and you're listening to the Community Podcast Initiative, or CPI. And the goal of the CPI is to produce and promote podcasting as a way to amplify underrepresented voices through audio storytelling. This initiative is based out of Mount Royal University in Treaty 7 territory and powered by Shaw. Here's a conversation I recently had with Duncan McHugh. He is an award-winning Anishinaabe journalist and a member of the Chippewas of Georgina Island First Nation. He is also an author and educator. I talked to him about his new book, Decolonizing Journalism, a guide to reporting in indigenous communities. McHugh's book is a guide for reporters, educators, and journalism students who engage, or have yet to engage, in reporting in indigenous communities. It includes crucial historical background and practical advice for how to work respectfully with indigenous sources, as well as critical reflections on current journalistic practices and norms. This is technically a textbook, but anyone interested in learning more about reporting in indigenous communities would benefit from reading it. My favorite section of the book is a series of interviews with nine indigenous journalists who are changing how journalism is done across Canada right now. I reached McHugh in Toronto, territory of Treaty 13 of the Upper Canada Land Surrenders and the Williams Treaties, as well as unceded land that continues to be contested. So welcome, Duncan McHugh. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about your book, um, Decolonizing Journalism, A Guide to Reporting in Indigenous Communities. So the first thing I wanted to ask you is, your book is published at a pretty intense time, I would Mm. say, in journalism in Canada, what many people have actually called a reckoning. So how do you think, how do you see your book contributing to this moment? It, 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 it is a reckoning. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not new, Gabriella. Like, like it, we Indigenous journalists have been talking about this need for the media business to change uh, for a long time. Um, we, we have been having this conversation internally in our own newsrooms for well over a decade, two decades, uh, and longer. Before b- before I arrived uh, at the CBC, there were Indigenous journalists who were saying that you need to do a better job uh, of uh, recognizing, of, of including more Indigenous voices on your in your newscasts and in your newspapers. You need to do a better job of recognizing what's newsworthy. That's, that's not a new conversation at all, Gabriella. It's, it's in fact an old one. But that said, we are at a moment where you know the the media seems to have, because of of uh, the, the the awful tragic news of George Floyd in in the United States, has recognized that it has it has done uh, 
a poor job and in some cases a terrible job when it comes to racialized communities and and that there is an obligation in this country in Canada to include indigenous voices in a substantive way in our in our newscasts that, that goes beyond uh, that, that goes beyond tragedy and and protests um, and and so uh, it, it's an important time because for whatever reason, the, the people who make decisions about media in this country have finally started to get the message that it's an important time. And that has been burbling up from journalism students, it's been burbling up from Indigenous communities and other racialized communities for a number of years, but finally, uh, the, the decision makers who run our newsrooms are recognizing that, that it is, quote, as you say, a, a moment of reckoning, and, and some of them. Not all of them, but some of them are, are actually starting to make change. And so that's a good thing. Your book starts with a timeline of important historical dates for Indigenous relations in Canada. Mm -hmm. And what struck me about the list is how recent so many of those events are. Do you think journalists across Canada truly have a sense of how fresh some of that very painful history still is? No. Uh, I mean, there, there are unfortunately a lot of journalists who, do, who have very little knowledge about Indigenous people or Indigenous history. This is why the Truth and Reconciliation Commission said, you know, you can, journalists cannot be arm's length from reconciliation. They need to be part of reconciliation. And that's why journalism schools and call to action number 86, the, the TRC said they have to start teaching Indigenous history and Indigenous culture and Indigenous politics for this very reason. And I don't blame my colleagues here at CBC or elsewhere for not knowing the history that is in that timeline. If they're looking at that and saying, I don't recognize many of these events, I don't know anything about them, I don't know the contributions of Indigenous soldiers in First World War or Second World War, I don't know who Pontiac was, I don't know what a papal bull is, I'd, like if they don't know those things, I don't blame them. I blame the education system, which has intentionally tried to, to keep Indigenous people and our histories more or less invisible, you know, so, and it is recent history, and, and it's crucial. They need to understand that history, uh, because without it, then you're caught relying on the unconscious biases and the stereotypes about Indigenous people which are in your brain. That Indigenous people are only on that side of the town and that side of the town isn't safe. You know, that Indigenous people wear feathers and buckskin. All those kinds of things are all part of our unconscious bias and it, it starts to perpetuate itself in our news coverage and our news stories even though we didn't even know that that was happening. Something else you talk about is, is the importance of journalists understanding a feeling, the feeling of rage. Why do you think that's important? Explain that to me, uh, Gabriella, the, the feeling of rage. The, the sentiment of rage when you go um, to report in Indigenous communities. You talk about in your book about how it's important to understand why sometimes people are still uh, enraged about precisely this very recent, um, still very present history. Um, of, of hurt. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I think there's a lot of things happening there. But but um, what 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 I was talking about was was the I, I think I called it 500 years of rage, um, 500 plus years of rage. Um, there there you know being uh, an indigenous person in this country is not always easy. Uh, you know, we have experienced the apocalypse in, in many different ways, you know, in terms of pandemic and, and, and mass deaths, 
we know that. We, we, our people have, have experienced that. We've experienced language loss and children being taken away and land being taken away. So, and there is still uh, a great deal of historical trauma in every indigenous person that you meet. Um, you know, the, the, the sadness and, and the loss uh, that we have experienced is, some might say, lives in our body. And so uh, that is going on. And, and it's also important to understand with regard to the long view of Indigenous history that many of these, these unhappy things that have happened with regard to our people have been uh, carried out by authority figures. So whether it is priests or whether it is police officers or whether it is government officials, uh, they have come into Indigenous communities and said, this is the way it must be. What you are doing is savage and, and cannot, uh, you cannot continue to do it. And so those two things combined, journalists may think that they're just going out to do a story about a uh, house fire uh, or undrinkable drinking water uh, or a child welfare agreement or a new opening of a school, but you will encounter people who will perceive you as being an authority figure. You are represent capital M mainstream media and they are angry. They are angry at us. There is a trust gap um, and you represent that person that they now have an opportunity to vent at. And just because you're asking a fairly simple question, how does it feel? You know, they may get upset. And this isn't going to happen often, but it does happen. It does happen. And what I say in the textbook is that you need to be really, uh, you know, understanding of this history of, of outsiders coming into communities and that you represent that outsider. And rather than getting your back up uh, in the way that many journalists do and say, you're not going to stop me from, you know, being a representative of freedom of the press. Uh, you know, I have a right to tell this story. Uh, get out of my way. Uh, I, I represent truth, you know, which is the way that many journalists have been taught to, to respond when people say no, right? That we, we double down and say, no, I'm going, I'm going to get this story. Uh, that's considered to be good journalism. Well, I'm saying that, that in some cases, that's not necessarily the case, that when someone gets angry at you like that, because of colonial history, uh, that is the time to uh, not react with anger, but to be humble, uh, to act with respect, to say, I hear you. I understand why you feel this way. Here are the, how can I change? How can I be different? How can I help? Um, that those are all, you know, how can I give back? Those are all questions that you should be asking, not how am I going to get my story and get out of my way? Absolutely. Um, I don't want to talk about your book without bringing up your sense of humor, because mm. you're quite intentional about warning us that your book errs on the side of funny. <laughs> and this is something I heard also in your podcast, Cooper Island, when you say, um, and I quote, you say, breaking news, Indians are funny. Um, so why is it important for you that both audiences and journalists know that? Oh, I love that you, because uh, I am very obvious about it in, in the textbook, uh, but I love that you also noted it in the podcast as well. There's an awful lot of sadness in Indigenous lives, um, but I have never been to a gathering of Indigenous people where we're not laughing. You know, laughter is, is just so much uh, a part of, of our survival um, and our joy. 
and and unfortunately because of the news being the, the nature of news funny isn't always uh, headline news. Uh, you know, it's sadness and is, is often headline news. And that's why so many people say, oh, I've got to turn off the newscast. I can't deal with all this death and destruction. The, the challenge when it comes to, to covering a particular group of people, indigenous people, is that when it's just this steady stream of bad news and sad news, then you get this image of indigenous people as being stoic, you know, and, um, and sad. When, when that is furthest from the truth. Uh, and and uh, and so it was important to me to include that in the podcast that, yes, I was speaking with survivors who uh, are dealing with multi-generational PTSD, but they, they laugh. They laugh about, about you know, their 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 grandchildren preferring biscotti and, and hamburger uh, rather than than uh, traditional seafood. They laugh about their cats and, and, and making sure that they have provided for their pets when they do death rituals, you know, like all of these things, we, we laugh and, and it's important to get beyond that stoic image of, of the in, Indian in the news. And you actually relate that, um, I mean, it, it seems that on, on kind of the same vein, you dedicate a full chapter of your or a section of your book um, to solutions oriented stories to encouraging mm. um, instructors and journalism students to start looking for those solutions oriented stories when they are reporting on indigenous issues or communities i mean you touched a little bit on that but do you want to expand on, on on why that why you wanted that to be in there because I understand why why journalists rush off to cover problem stories. Uh, you know, there there are, and, and we do that not just in Indigenous news, but everything. I mean, we, you know, there, there is tension uh, when there are problems. And in tension, um, you know, you, you get all many of the elements of, of stories that, that make people pay attention. Um, you know, uh, it, it, it's it's the, the raw emotional material that we need to to get people to pay to pay attention to our news stories, and and so th that's never going to change. Uh, journalists going into indigenous communities uh, when there are problems that, that will always exist. But what what I'm suggesting is is that there there are solutions. That, 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 you know, I think many Canadians, when they think about residential schools or drinking water or child welfare or suicide, they just think that these are intractable problems that have never changed and, and have no solution, you know, and, and it's not. Um, it's a bit like the Middle East. I mean, you know, people, people, the, the, the problems seem so large and so complex that, that people just say, ah, you know, and, and they don't do anything. When in fact, there are communities right across this country which have found their own solutions to drinking water, which have found their own solutions to suicide crisis, which have found their own solutions to child welfare. And, and so rather than just putting out these problems and having Canadians go, ah, you know, there it is again, we can help advance the public conver conversation and the public interest by reporting on these solutions and not just saying it's the government that's got to fix it all, right? 
which there are some communities that believe that there are you know they have a fiduciary responsibility a treaty responsibility it's the government's responsibility to fix this and and that's true but at the end of the day the government is government bureaucracy is bureaucracy and we're not going to see those solutions unless indigenous communities themselves stand up and start finding the solutions and so when you can start to share information with other communities about some community on the other side of the country which found a solution to its suicide issue then you can go, oh, that's where, uh, you know, it's journalism for the public good. One thing I particularly enjoyed about your book is that you provide um, exercises and discussion prompts that instructors can use with their journalism students. You make it really easy for someone to imagine, okay, how am I going to teach a subject like this? But it made me wonder, do you think that non-Indigenous instructors and professors are still hesitant to teach journalism students about reporting in Indigenous communities? I know they're hesitant because I've had conversations with them. I've had conversations with them about what well, should they be teaching it or not. Um, and my answer is the same as, as the answer that I give to journalism students who come to me and ask, should I be doing this story uh, about Indigenous issues? The answer is this, yes, and get over it. Um, like you need to be part of, uh, of, of this conversation and these solutions. We are all treaty people. Uh, it, it, it can't just be, and, and I recognize that in half the country that they do not have treaties and it's unceded Aboriginal land, but indigenous land. But, but in this, in my territory here uh, in, in Southern Ontario, we are treaty people. But I use that metaphorically more than, 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 than factually. Um, you know, it, it can't just be the indigenous partners who are doing all the work when it comes to, uh, you know, starting to rectify this this broken relationship. It needs to be the other partners as well. And so um, non-indigenous profs, I totally understand and get that they may be nervous about teaching this material and saying, I'm not qualified to do this. I don't know any. Sure. I, and that's, you know, you're not, I'm not saying that you're an expert on, um, on, on Indigenous issues. So reach out and find some to include as guest lecturers in your classroom. Uh, start building partnerships with Indigenous colleagues if they exist. Uh, if they don't exist, then ask your, your employer why and find honorariums to bring people in. Um, you know, these are all uh, solutions to, to, to having a lack of knowledge. Um, and honestly, uh, Gabriela, uh, Professors, uh, secondary teachers, elementary teachers often take on subjects that they may not be experts in. We are experts in teaching. That is our expertise is in teaching. The subject matter is almost uh, immaterial sometimes. You know, should I be teaching rocket science? No, probably not. Uh, but could I? Mm, I might be able to, you know, if you gave me enough time and prep, I might be able to uh, get by through a lecture in rocket science. Thank you. A couple more questions. I want to talk about the concept of reciprocity, which you bring up as an important element in establishing trust when reporting in Indigenous communities. Um, so what does it mean to be reciprocal? Reciprocity, I mean, I've, inter I've interpreted it through my uh, Anishinaabe teachings. Uh, but I would say that th there are many, many, many differences amongst Indigenous people. Uh, you know, Indigenous peoples are not uh, heter uh, are not homogenous by by any stretch of the imagination. But that said, uh, reciprocity is one value 
which I think is is common to, to every indigenous group that I've ever uh, spent time with. The, the the notion of giving back is is deeply embedded in in our worldview and in our cultural practices. Um, and and so the example that I give is a medicine teacher who um, puts down tobacco when they harvest uh, some some plants, uh, or a hunter who gives uh, a gift or tobacco to the animal that they've just killed. Um, those are ways of recognizing that you have an obligation to something that, that you have uh, extracted. And I am urging journalists to uh, think about their journalism that way. Uh, in the same way that, that anybody, anybody who's ever been in the middle of a clear cut uh, looks around and, and I include loggers in this. Uh, you know, anybody that's been in the middle of a clear cut looks around and sees sees how devastating that has been to uh, the earth. Um, you know, journalists go out into our communities and we extract stories in a way that's often harmful to our communities. We don't. We, we have not done a very good job of understanding our responsibility to give back. And it goes beyond just making sure that, you know, that, that, that uh, people are wearing swag. You know, it, it, it needs to be more than that. Uh, it needs giving back is, is, is important when it comes to, uh, to the relationship we have with our sources. Uh, and also the relationship that we build with communities um, in, in terms of understanding and listening to the stories that are important to them and making sure that they're represented in our newsrooms. Do you think that this concept of reciprocity sometimes clashes with normative demands of journalism? For example, um, you know, the teaching of being objective and distant from both our sources and our stories. Of course it does. And, and that's part of the reason why journalists get their backs up when we start talking about this kind of thing. You know, when it talks, when you talk about an honorarium for an elder, well, that goes against a fundamental principle of, of, of journalism standards and, and practices about paying sources. But, but you know, herein lies, lies the, the challenge, uh, Gabriella. It, it, it is that we need to start understanding that we can adapt our journalism practices in ways that do not fundamentally challenge our, our role as, as fact finders, as truth tellers, that, that, that there are ways that you can do both, that we can bridge those relationships. And that, that, that um, you know, it, it is possible to, to uh, adapt our practice and, and I and I use you know trauma survivors as an example of that I mean we we need to understand that that perhaps being fully transparent uh, at the outset um, of an interview sharing quotes you know giving uh, survivors more control over over their own story um, that, 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 that's, that, that may not be harming our, our objectivity, but may actually be improving it. It may actually be building stronger relationships that help us tell better stories. 
Thank you for that. A big part of your book is made up of conversations with nine other indigenous journalists, and the breadth of those conversations is remarkable. What kind of impact do you think indigenous journalists are having on the practice of journalism from coast to coast to coast right now? Uh, huge. It, it is huge. And, and, and one of the reasons why um, I wanted to include other journalists is, is because each of them uh, are remarkable in their own efforts, in their own ways uh, to, to, to do this work of what I call decolonizing journalism. We are, in, in often unheralded ways, um, changing the narrative in our newsrooms about the way that, that we, uh, we go about uh, the business of journalism. And, and so when I talk with someone uh, like Connie Walker, who has done so much good work when it comes to trauma-informed reporting, or when I talk with Wapiji Rice uh, about this notion of bringing humility uh, into his business as a, as a video journalist, uh, you know, the, those, those are things which, which uh, are having profound impacts on newsrooms. Uh, right across this country, uh, individual uh, Indigenous journalists uh, have been lobbying for uh, change. And, and, and they do so because they know, understand that, that those things are important uh, teachings to them as Indigenous people, but that they can't practice journalism in, in, that, in that way that, that they have been trained to do uh, with, without it running into conflict with who they are. So there were either two things that were going to happen. There were just never going to be a place for Indigenous people in the mainstream media. And that's what we saw throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, uh, that that Indigenous people just did said, yeah, they were, I'm not interested. I'm not interested in, in being part of this machine. Um, and, and they went and expressed their talents and, and visions elsewhere. Uh, but uh, through the... 90s and, and early aughts and now in the in the in the tens and twenties, we're we're starting to see uh, newsrooms listening and saying that if we're going to keep uh, some of our our, our uh, indigenous colleagues around, we need to start listening to the lessons that they're sharing with us and changing our practices. That was Duncan McHugh, an award-winning journalist and author of Decolonizing Journalism, a guide to reporting in Indigenous communities. I am Gabriela Perdomo, Editor-in-Chief of JSource. This podcast was a collaboration with JSource and the Community Podcast Initiative at Mount Royal University, which focuses on audio storytelling as a medium to better include underrepresented voices. The CPI is powered by Shaw. You can learn more about JSource at j-source.ca and you can find the Community Podcast Initiative at thepodcaststudio.ca or on social media at communitypodyyc. Thank you.